This is an audio recording of an award lecture presented at the 2022 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Okay, thank you uh, very much, George, for that very kind introduction. It's an honor to be introduced uh, by you for this award. And uh, we, on behalf of Toby and myself, like to express gratitude to ASBMB um, for this honor and recognition of our, of our work. Um, Toby and I have worked together uh, very, very closely, and we've run a joint lab together for the past eight years. And um, it's a fantastic way to do science with a partner. It's an unusual way, but we've loved, uh, we've loved it all, and we recently wrote down some of our thoughts on, on scientific partnerships in the JCI last year, if you're interested. We're going to talk today uh, in our seminar about energy metabolism. And in energy metabolism, of course, we as living organisms live in an open equilibrium of energy, and that is to say, we don't generate energy, we have to take in energy from our environment, and then we use that energy to, um, to generate work and uh, heat. Um, but because energy is not always available, we need ways to store energy, and uh, this slide shows a representation of energy stores in a, in a 70 kilogram person. So if we look at uh, the carbohydrate stores, of course, get us through overnight fasting, they might get us through a couple hours of a bike ride or a run, um, but it's really the lipid stores that allow us to have prolonged fasting um, and to live for, for extended periods of time. And that's because in these lipids, the primary energy molecule of energy storage is triacylglycerols. These are highly reduced compounds that require no water for their storage. In fact, um, as we all know, oil and water don't mix, so these form oil droplets, and these oil droplets then are in cells and will be somewhat the discussion point today. Now, this creates a conundrum in biology because most of biochemistry happens in an aqueous environment, um, but most of the energy is stored in an oil environment. So how has nature adapted to utilize this energy? And that's what we'll talk about. So through evolution, uh, nature has evolved a means to generate emulsified particles within the cell called lipid droplets. And this is a solution to the storage problem. Now, lipid droplets inherently convert cells into emulsions, with the cytosol being the aqueous and aqueous phase, and the emulsified lipid droplet particles being the dispersed phase in a cell. And then these lipid droplets are coated by emulsifiers or surfactants, which in this case are phospholipids. Now, lipid droplets as an organelle are found across uh, all eukaryotes. Essentially, if you load them with fatty acids, they will make lipid droplets. They're also found in some prokaryotes, such as, uh, as shown here, rhodococcus in the style red staining, but also uh, mycobacteria. And the green staining is bodipi, which is a common dye that uh, fluoresces in a neutral lipid environment. Now, these are unusual organelles as compared to bilayer uh, organelles in the cell, and that lipid droplets are made uh, of a neutral lipid core surrounded by a phospholipid monolayer. And in addition, they are decorated by literally tens of proteins that differ amongst different cell types or different tissues, 
They're often found in close proximity to the endoplasmic reticulum and often in some cell types near the mitochondria. And lipid droplets are, of course, important for the physiology of many tissues, being an energy-storing organelle. Adipose tissue is the central place where we store energy. But lipid droplets, of course, are important in the intestine and the liver for moving lipids through the body um, and storing lipids. And they're important in the mammary epithelium for milk production in a fascinating process of extrusion of lipid droplets and, of course, are a fuel for the heart. So not only do they store energy, but also the process of making lipid droplets is one way to detoxify the ER. So when excess fatty acids or sterols, for example, or diacylglycerols build up in the membrane, they can be um, converted into neutrolipids and stored in lipid droplets. But if we exceed the capacity to store these lipids in lipid droplets, of course, that is the setting of obesity. And in that setting, when the capacity is exceeded, then one of the model paradigms is that these excess lipids build up and do things, for instance, in the endoplasmic reticulum, like cause ER stress, which of course can lead to either adaptation or cell death and different diseases. And some of those diseases are shown here. So in addition to obesity, we have obesity-related diseases uh, that are due to abnormalities of lipid storage, such as fatty liver disease, diabetes, and insulin resistance. And additionally, sterile esters lipid droplets are prominent as they accumulate in atherosclerosis, and lipid droplet biology is important in certain forms of cardiomyopathy. Now, this is a big problem, for example, now because global statistics, because of global incidence of obesity, are that one in four people have a fatty liver, and a certain number of those people are going to go on to develop uh, steatohepatitis and fibrosis and cirrhosis and liver failure. But the inability to store uh, lipid droplets is also manifest on the other side of the spectrum, and that is if you can't make lipid droplets, uh, then you have excess fatty acids which can accumulate in different tissues. And this is somewhat uh, contributing to the pathophysiology of lipodystrophy, where people don't have the capacity to make lipids to store in lipid droplets. So normal physiology lies between these two extremes. And just to show you what's happened in the last uh, 15, 20 years or so, is that human genetics has identified mutations in many different genes that are involved in the droplet formation process that disrupt lipid storage, and these result in various pathologies such as lipodystrophy. Now, in today's lecture, what we're going to do with that background is tell you a little bit about the life cycle of a lipid droplet, things we've been working on for the last 15 years. So I'm going to start by giving you a brief overview of our current view of lipid droplet formation. And then Toby's going to uh, take over and tell you about protein targeting to lipid droplets and talk about uh, a story that we've uh, just completed, which is about uh, consumption of lipid droplets by lipophagy. And along the way, we'll sprinkle in uh, some uh, of what we know about how these processes relate to physiology and disease. So to begin with, then, just let's talk about how do we make, how, does, how do cells make lipid droplets? Okay, so... To make a lipid droplet, first you need neutral lipids, and these are made in the endoplasmic reticulum. Today we're going to talk about triacylglycerols, but of course the same could apply, or similar paradigms could apply to sterol esters. Um, and for triacylglycerols, the activity for making triacylglycerols was actually reported in around 1960 by Eugene Kennedy and workers when they described the Kennedy pathway. That is, fatty acyl-CoA's and diacylglycerols are covalently linked to form triacylglycerols in the ER. It was about 40 years later that uh, my laboratory 
in conjunction with folks at CalGene, identified the genes encoding the enzyme diacylglycerol acyltransferase 1 and subsequently diacylglycerol acyltransferase 2. At the time, we didn't, of course, know what these enzymes looked like, but this is kind of how we drew them, and I'll, I'll show you that we can update that picture now. But you can see we drew them nothing alike because they come from two different gene families and they share no sequence homology. And indeed, uh, as Toby and I began our studies together, we could see that DGAT1 is, is localized exclusively to the endoplasmic reticulum, whereas DGAT2 is in the ER but also relocalizes around uh, lipid droplets when cells are loaded with fatty acids. In the last few years, we've made some progress on understanding the DGAT enzymes. Um, our group, as well as the Zhao group at Baylor, reported the cryo-EM structure of DGAT1. And uh, that is shown, uh, the electron density map is shown here. You can see that it is a dimer of two monomers that reach across and touch each other. It's a beautiful butterfly-shaped uh, molecule. And we've learned for the first time how an enzyme makes a triglyceride. And so I'll give you the punchline of how this works from our studies. And that is basically there is a catalytic histidine that is invariant in this MBOT class of enzymes. It lies deep within the membrane, shielded from water. And then, in cartoon phase, the fatty acyl-CoA's, as shown here, for long chains embedded in the membranes are shorter, maybe soluble, enter from the cytosolic uh, side through a tunnel to position the thioester bond of fatty acyl-CoA near this catalytic histidine. The other substrate, diacylglycerol, then we think comes from the membrane, perhaps through a lateral gate uh, that's evident in this particular MBOT enzyme. And here they come together at the reaction center. The reaction is catalyzed, and this results in the triacylglycerol product as well as CoASH. And these are released with CoASH going into the cytosol, and the triacylglycerol released, we believe, through the lateral gate into the plane of the membrane. So we begin to have some insights now about how these enzymes work from the cryoEM structures of DGAT1. And then recently, with the um, advent of AlphaFold, actually in the original AlphaFold uh, article in Nature, they showed the DGAT2 structure. And we imagine DGAT2 looks something like this, where the hairpin part of DGAT2 sticks in the membrane. And based on this structure, it must work, we believe, uh, at the cytosolic surface uh, where fatty acyl-CoAs are, are um, present. Now, a few words about these enzymes as drug targets. When we first identified DGAT1, it was, a, it was a hot drug target because the mice looked fantastic. They could live longer, they were thinner, they didn't get diabetes, et cetera. And so a number of companies developed highly specific and potent DGAT1 inhibitors. However, about the same time that these were coming along, uh, we, in collaboration with folks at MGH, identified DGAT1 mutations in humans that led to a congenital diarrheal syndrome. And uh, th it was, this was characterized by fat dependency, so essentially when kids started drinking milk immediately after birth, they started having diarrhea that was characterized by um, junction problems between the enterocytes, so they had a protein-losing enteropathy. And most likely this happens because the excess fatty acids in the absence of DGAT1 lead to toxic accumulation of lipid metabolites. Um, this is a, the case for humans because in humans, we tend, uh, we do not, appear to express DGAT2 in the intestine as mice do. So mice looked good in the absence of DGAT1, but we do poorly probably because we don't have extra capacity in the absence of DGAT1 to sterify these fatty acids. 
So these different pharmaceutical inhibitors failed uh, clinical trials for these reasons, uh, that essentially the genetics were copied by the, by the pharmacology and people that took DGAT1 inhibitors developed a dose-dependent uh, steatorrhea. Um, in more recent years, DGAT2 has emerged as a drug target. DGAT2 deficiency in murine hepatocytes um, protects against fatty liver without complications. We showed that uh, a couple years ago in mice. And then meanwhile, in parallel, uh, a number of pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer and Ionis, have developed targeted ther therapies to inhibit DGAT2. And at least for Pfizer, phase one studies showed a marked reduction in liver fat without toxicity and this has now progressed and is beginning phase two to three uh, trials. And the interesting thing about DGAT2 as a target is it actually has a dual mechanism of action. Um, as expected, DGAT2 inhibitors will block triglyceride synthesis, but it turns out, um, originally noticed by both our laboratories as well as Pfizer, there's a relationship between blocking triglyceride synthesis by DGAT2 and de novo lipogenesis by the SREBP system. And that is when you inhibit DGAT2, there is a feedback mechanism that suppresses the processing of SREBP into its active transcription factor, and therefore you suppress de novo lipogenesis. So for these two reasons, um, this seems to be a promising therapy, particularly when fatty liver disease is characterized by hyperinsulinemia and increased de novo lipogenesis. So after we make these triglycerides, the next problem that the cell faces is how do you make a lipid droplet and how do you do so in an organized manner? We know from studies of Jim Hamilton and Don Small many years ago that the maximum solubility of triacylglycerol as measured by NMR in the bilayer is approximately three mole percent. So if you make enough triglyceride, you're gonna make droplets, they're gonna make particles. So how does the cell tackle this in an organized manner? So this, in short, will tell you a little bit about how we've, uh, we in the field have elucidated this. And the chief player in this is a protein called SAPIN. SAPIN is an ER protein uh, that has two transmembrane domains. It's about 40 to 50 kilodaltons. And the original insights uh, into SAPIN being important here were that in 2001, it was recognized that SAPIN mutations lead to lipodystrophy syndromes. Then from the work of Rob Yang, Joel Goodman, many, many others, uh, including some from our laboratory, it was discovered that SAPIN deficiency perturbs lipid droplet biology. We'll show you a little bit of that. So lipid droplet formation is disorganized when SAPIN is not present. So in a wild-type cell here, as you can see, there's some pre-existing droplets, and then you add oleate, and over time, they form lipid droplets. But in SAPIN-deficient cells, this process is disorganized, and you see a lot of large lipid droplets, but you also see a lot of these small lipid droplets that are dispersed throughout the cell, and it turns out they are small lipid droplets. So uh, we have studied SAPIN. We've CRISPR tagged it in Drosophila cells and human cells, and you know, in both cases, what we see are foci of SAPIN that uh, migrate and move around the endoplasmic reticulum, as you can see on these tubules here. Uh, we wanted to study SAPIN and how does it work to catalyze triglycer uh, lipid droplet formation. And so, as I said, this is the monomer unit of SAPIN. And so recently, um, we, as well as uh, Rob Yang's group and uh, Pedro Carvalho's group, have generated a series of structures in different organisms that lend insight into how SAPIN works. So this is from our, our uh, cryo-EM structure of SAPIN in yeast. And what we see is that SAPIN forms a cage-like structure in the endoplasmic reticulum. This is the lumen, here's the cytosol. And 
you can see that in our structure, what we see is these transmembrane domains are overlapping and somewhat intertwined. And if we take a look at the sapin structure more closely and peel away the top, what we see is that the luminal domain of sapin is characterized by a ring, and that ring has a uh, beta sandwich sheet domain and hydrophobic helices that are placed towards the center of this beautiful complex. And so here's the beta sandwich fold and the hydrophobic helix. And these hydrophobic helices sit above, in what we think above the, the luminal uh, ring, and we envision that they're embedded in the ER membrane like this. And it was, it's been shown through molecular dynamic simulations and hypothesized that these hydrophobic helices then act as a surface for triacylglycerol to interact with. Um, however, whenever we purified sapin complex alone, we don't purify triacylglycerols. So this made us wonder if there was another uh, part of the lipid droplet complex, lipid droplet assembly complex that we were missing. And Jiun Chung in the lab noticed that these hydrophobic helices were highly conserved and was able to do a pull-down experiment where she isolated one protein that interacted only when these hydrophobic helices are present. This protein is TMEM159, or we now call it lipid droplet assembly factor one, LDAF1. And Jiun did these beautiful set of experiments. I don't have time to go into detail, but basically what she could show is that wherever there was a SAPIN and LDAF uh, focus together is where we saw lipid droplets form with the, our earliest detection markers. And in our hands, PLIN3 uh, is the most sensitive to detect a newly formed lipid droplet. And indeed, as I told you before, if we purify SAPIN alone, uh, this is a triglyceride control. We don't see triglycerides. However, when we purify the complex together, we can see triglycerides on a TLC. If we add oleate, we see more triglycerides accumulate, and this can be blocked by DGAD inhibitors. So for SAPIN, um, in the absence of LDAF1, this is the electron density with the SAPIN molecule that we see and the micelle, and so this is how we imagine it looks. And uh, we've, not, we've not yet succeeded in having a cryo-AM structure of both proteins together, but this is the electron density map. And you can see that now the micelle is, is bulging as though it is accumulating triacylglycerol in this uh, place. And <clears throat> LDAF1, we know, starts out co-localized with sapin, but then as lipid droplets grow, it tends to coat the, the growing lipid droplet adjacent to sapin. So our current model for uh, lipid droplet formation is shown here in this uh, beautiful video made by Janet Iwasa. And that is fatty acids uh, are, are in the form of fatty acyl-CoA's and diacylglycerol are covalently joined by the DGAD enzymes to form triacylglycerol. The triacylglycerol then diffuses within the plane of the bilayer, and we believe SAPIN acts as sort of a uh, hydrophobic catalytic chamber uh, to catalyze uh, the uh, phase separation reaction. And then as the lipid droplet grows, uh, we, I don't have time to show you, but these transmembrane domains tend to look like they have different conformations, so we imagine they open up and allow the lipid droplet to form. And I, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Toby, who will do part two. Thank you. So, as Bob mentioned, the presence of lipid droplets presents cells with a unique challenge that the aqueous environment has to deal with a bank of hydrophobic molecules that are somewhat refractory to the normal aqueous biochemistry. And the solution that cells have evolved to do this occurs through a set of proteins that are specific on the surface of lipid droplets 
and that are really key to allow cells to deposit energy, withdraw energy from that organelle, and also use it as platforms for many other processes. So a key question in the field then has been, what are these proteins? And initially, a breakthrough was uh, when Dean Lanos identified the first specific protein to the lipid droplet surface called perilipin. And since then, we and many others have identified that there's many, many proteins that appear to be specifically targeted to the surface of lipid droplets, including usually in the, in the scale of hundreds, depending on cell type. And one thing I want to leave you with is like, that there are some proteins that are probably what you would expect, enzymes involved in the synthesis of lipids. And then there's a whole class of things which I find nobody has any clue why they're on lipid droplets, including transcription factors, histones, and so forth, uh, discovered by us and other laboratories. We recently developed a portal um, that integrates systematic databases from many different processes, and I encourage you to look up if you ever run across anything lipid droplet, together with the Broad Institute. A key question for our cell biology uh, mind is then how do these proteins actually get there? Now, work, again, from, that I have to summarize from us and others, has identified two principal pathways that mediate the trafficking of proteins specifically to the surface of lipid droplets. The first one, it commences in the cytosol and proteins dined directly to the surface of lipid droplets. And in the second uh, pathway, proteins target from initially being inserted into in the plasmic reticulum to uh, the surface of lipid droplets. And operationally, we call these pathways cytold and ertold for cytosol to lipid droplet and ER to lipid droplet. And just very briefly, the cytol pathway uh, presents a challenge. The protein has to pick up the surface of the lipid droplet among the vastly more abundant um, membranes of the ER. And it turns out that those two membranes have very similar compositions. There are no specific lipids on the surface of lipid droplets. So why would they not just bind to the ER membrane? Now it turns out that the monolayer property of a lipid droplet um, results in specific uh, surface properties of lipid droplets. The underlying triglyceride sort of pushes apart the acyl chains of the, of the monolayer, thereby generating so-called packing defects where the hydrophobic surface is to some degree available. And these packing defects are much more persistent, larger, um, and more frequent on the surface of lipid droplets than in, in bilayer membranes. We can reconstitute such targeting, for instance, in a system where we make a giant unilamellar vesicle and integrate triglyceride to generate a system in which you have both uh, the, the triglyceride lens contiguous with a bilayer membrane and then reconstitute protein targeting. And here's just one example where you can see that lipid droplet proteins are able to pick out the monolayer surface around this um, lipid droplet model and bind much less to the bilayer membrane. And using systems such as this, together with theoretical work, we've uncovered that particularly un, uh, sequences of uh, proteins that are unfolded use large hydrophobic residues to insert into those packing defects. And in a second step, that leads to the folding of the surrounding sequence in a so-called amphipatic helix, in which one side of the helix is very hydrophobic and the, second, the other half of the helix is um, very hydrophilic, and this in, um, in result leads to an essentially irreversible process of targeting to the lipid droplet. The second pathway, as I mentioned, commences with synthesis of proteins in the ER. But of course, even we know that proteins don't help in and out of membranes, and so it is kind of unlikely that they just come out of the ER membrane and then target to lipid droplets. So how does this work? 
Here's an example where you can see the segregation of such a protein. You see in yellow here a lipid droplet protein, GPAT4, that localizes to the endoplasmic reticulum uh, marked in green, and, it's, and both proteins localize to the ER, and as soon as lipid droplets form, the two colors segregate because now GPAT4 localizes to the surface of lipid droplets. Now you might imagine, well, the lipid droplets start in the ER, the protein starts in the ER, they go on when the lipid droplets form, problem solved. Turns out it's not that easy. What we find is that the sapin complex that f is involved in the formation that Bob just showed you actually excludes many, many proteins and does not allow targeting during the initial formation. And that instead, later in the process, in the biogenesis process, additional junctions with the endoplasmic reticulum are established that we call ER lipid droplet membrane bridges. These bridges can be visualized, for instance, in fluorescence microscopy and, or, or um, electron tomography, as you can see here. Um, <clears throat> and we believe that this provides a path between the ER and the lipid droplet. But of course, just because there's a road doesn't mean everybody has to go over it. So why would the proteins actually accumulate on lipid droplets rather than stay back in the vastly more abundant endoplasmic reticulum? We don't know the full answer to this, but to this day we believe that proteins are inserted that we have studied, such as GPAT4, are inserted with a strain in the, in the plasmic reticulum where a conformation uh, anchors them to both sides of the, uh, of the ER membrane. And when they uh, target to the lipid droplet, this conformation changes, the whole system zippers up, and by uh, doing so, a, whole, a lower energy state um, is acquired, and of course this different and free energy would uh, allow for the accumulation of proteins on lipid droplets. Now, right at the beginning, Bob mentioned that one of the major functions of lipid droplets is energy storage. But of course that's only good for a cell or an organism if you can also consume the lipids and bring them out of the lipid droplet. And in the last few minutes I'm going to tell you about a recent story from our laboratory on that topic. Now, principally, there are two pathways, or there appear to be two different pathways to remove lipids from a lipid droplet. The first one uses enzymes, such as lipases, that are targeted directly to the lipid droplet surface. And this process is called lipolysis, in which a sequence of reactions cleaves the triacylglycerol and frees it for the cytosol. In a second pathway, a lipid droplet, or a part of a lipid droplet, is targeted to a lysosome through the process of autophagy, and then lysosomal lipases degrade the lipids wholesale. And um, since the last 15 years or so, we know about this process that autophagy can target lipid droplets. This is a, uh, from a paper by Mike Chacha and Ana Maria Cuervo, uh, in which they found that um, compromising autophagy in liver leads to an accumulation of lipid droplets. And this has been followed by an observations through many, many systems, but we know very little about the molecular mechanisms of how this pathway occurs. And the key gap in our knowledge is that we don't know the molecular players that link the lipid droplet specifically to autophagy. Now we made a serendipitous discovery, in particular Jeon Chung in the lab, when she studied a protein that is called Spartan that targets to lipid droplet. And the serendipitous discovery was that this protein does um, localize to a subset, but not all lipid droplets. You can see all lipid droplets marked with bodipi, Spartan targets to some of them, but not to all of them, and many of them are that have plan 3 are sort of a different subset of droplets. And so this really intrigued Jian, and she ended up asking, okay, what is specific about those droplets? 
We don't know the full answer, but one answer she found is like that those droplets are the ones that also localize with core components of the autophagy machinery and lysosomal markers, such as LAMP1, shown here. Now, what is this protein? Uh, this protein has a number of domains. Uh, one of them is somewhat unfortunately named the UBR domain or ubiquitin binding region and the senescence domain. Doesn't tell you that much. So, but when we started analyzing this, we found that in the C-terminal part known as the senescence domain, this comes from an evolutionary comparison in plants, there's actually a series of these amphipatic helices that can directly bind lipid droplets that I described in one of the pathways. And that this other domain, the UBR domain, can directly interact with members of the LC3 family or ATG8 family of proteins of, of the core machinery in autophagy. So this, of course, immediately led us to hypothesize that probably this protein has something to do with lipophagy. To test this, Jayon developed an elegant assay based on work of others where we used a fluorophore that we embed on the surface of lipid droplets that changes its excitation spectrum depending on the pH. In the cytosol, it appears green. When it is in the lysosome where the pH is acidic, it shifts to red. We can find conditions in cells where the lipids are mobilized, and as a consequence, this reporter shifts its fluorescence from this green to the magenta color. But when we uh, knock out spartan in these cells, this doesn't happen with the same efficiency. Again, implicating this directly in the delivery of lipid droplets to lysosomes. Consistent with this, we found that cells that have no spartan function accumulate lipid droplets and triacylglycerol specifically, and this was not due to a change in the rate of synthesis of the lipids, but its turnover, and specifically we find the same level of defect in mobilization of TAG that we would find with the core machinery of, uh, of uh, autophagy. This, together with much data that I don't have time to present today, leads us to a model in which this protein is an adapter that links really lipid droplet to the autophagy delivery system and uh, thereby helps to degrade uh, lipid droplets. Now what I haven't told you yet is like, how is this protein found and what does Spartan mean? It turns out this is really interesting for us. So Spartan was identified as a human mutation um, that leads to a complex spastic paraplegia with uh, progressive muscle weakness, small stature, and developmental delays. It is therefore one of the spastic paraplegia genes, and it has this num alternative name, SPG20. Um, it is highly expressed in the brain, and particularly in neurons. These are not the cells you first think about when you think about lipid droplets. So it made us really wonder, okay, what, what is going on here? So first, Jeon generated a knockout in ES cell-derived neurons and made motor neurons, and what she found is that Spartan really led to a dramatic accumulation of lipid droplets in these cells that normally have only very few lipid droplets. We then asked, does this matter in, in, an, in the actual context of physiology? We did an experiment together with Junkyu Park uh, at Wayne State where we used uh, injection of dominant negative constructs to Spartan function in the two hemispheres of a mouse brain. Uh, what we found is that specifically only in those cells um, that where we interfere with Spartan function, you start to see the accumulation of lipid droplets here. This is these, uh, the stain here at Bodipi. You can see this here also. And when we dissect out these regions and do lipidomics on them, we see that there is a massive increase in specifically triglycerides, also some uh, intermediate products of the pathway, such as diacylglycerol, but we see to a much, we see essentially no changes in the other lipids in the brain. Now, this is really intriguing for us and is a new frontier for us to think about what is the role of triglycerides in the brain. 
This may initially have seemed far-fetched, but we also then noticed a couple of similarities. So what Bob had not mentioned yet is that sapin mutations are also, uh, a class of sapin mutations are also known as SPG17, another form of a spastic paraplegia. And Ben Kravat's group has identified one of the lipolysis enzymes that's specifically expressed in the brain, DDHD2, which is also called SPG54, as a lipase that uh, takes apart triglycerides in the brain. And of course now I just told you about Spartan. Together these make us really um, wonder what exactly is the function of triglyceride flux in the brain. Now together Bob and I told you some of the, some of the, the things we've been working on. Uh, we tried to talk to you about our efforts to understand how triglyceride is synthesized. We told you about where we stand with our understanding of how lipid droplets are formed from the endoplasmic reticulum, particularly with the cage structure of sapin. I've tried to um, give you an overview of how the targeting pathways work in our current understanding and uh, give you some new ideas on how Spartan might function in lipid uh, droplet autophagy. Um, Particularly important to both of us is though that there's some things that we now understand that we haven't, but there's a lot, a lot of stuff we have absolutely no clue about yet. Um, we focused in the beginning on the formation, formation of lipid droplets formed by triacylglycerol, but there are lipid droplets that are particularly rich in sterile esters, that are particularly rich in retinal esters, and we do not know whether the same or other principles might apply. There are uh, still many open questions on how these bridges with the ER form, how they're maintained, is there regulation and targeting, and then what do all these unexpected lipid droplet proteins do, such as the transcription factors we recently found that are localized to droplets under some conditions. Um, and with the um, sort of little vignette on lipid droplets and triglycerides in the brain, I also want to highlight that we have not a lot of understanding of the triglyceride and, tri uh, and lipid droplet function in many tissues. Um, and then finally, also compare, um, related to the sort of question of disease when you have too much lipid droplets, I don't think we understand at all how capacity of cells to store lipid droplets is uh, mediated. I also want to add my thanks to ASBMB, uh, the committee who selected us, and to George for introducing us. It is a great honor to speak to you today. I think Bob and I um, have been very fortunate in having each other as scientific partners, but of course we also had many people in the laboratory who helped us. For this award lecture, I'm not going to go uh, through all the names that have contributed to our work over the years, but we're greatly indebted to them and they've been just uh, fantastic. Uh, also we've had many collaborators both at Harvard and elsewhere who helped us with individual parts of those projects. Um, and we really believe in team science, not only between the two of us, but also with others. I'm really grateful for, uh, for all that, and I'm not sure whether there is any questions planned, but uh, we're going to hang around anyway, and so if you want to know anything um, that we might not be able to answer, please find us here. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this lecture. It was recorded in April 2022 in Philadelphia at the ASBMB annual meeting, held in conjunction for the final time with the Experimental Biology Conference. In 2023, the ASBMB annual meeting will be held in Seattle. Learn more at discoverbnb.asbmb.org.